We're starting back with Zechariah tonight, and if you'll remember, uh, there are a series of visions that Zechariah has. It's the most quoted book of the prophets in the New Testament. Jesus quoted this book quite a bit. Um, Zechariah was the prophet that Jesus referred to that had been martyred at the temple, and it's, it's a major book of prophecy. There's so much about it, but if you remember, we also talked about Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of each other. They were like, you know, the, the image that comes to my mind is tag team preaching, not tag team wrestling, but uh, Haggai was encouraging the people to work on rebuilding the temple, and Zechariah was speaking to their hearts about revival and renewing a relationship with God. They were coming back from exile uh, from Babylon where God had exiled them because of, of their sins. And you can read about that in the book of Ezekiel. So let's pray. And then we're going to look tonight at chapter 2. And we're going to start right with uh, the third vision that he had, okay? Father, we love you. And um, before we even begin the message tonight, Lord, we want to pray for Ukraine. Lord, we pray that you will put it in the hearts of the Russian people and the Russian leadership, Lord, to lay down their arms and stop this atrocity of preying upon their weaker neighbor, Lord. God, stop the lies of claiming this was not a country. We pray that you will protect the hearts of the Ukrainian people from bitterness and hatred. And I know, Lord, that's an awfully hard thing to pray for people who are watching their children die watching their sons and daughters die, Lord. But God, I ask you that you will touch this nation that's had such a revival and sent out so many missionaries. God, you will touch and strengthen them this evening. Lord, I thank you for how the Polish people have just reached out to welcome, Lord, so many of the Ukrainians. And we pray that the Hungarians and the Slavs, Lord, we pray that all these other countries through there will continue. Lord, we thank you for the church that we've partnered with and in Vienna and actually sent teams from here to help build their church that, Lord, have taken families in tonight at BCC in Vienna. God, we ask you to bless them. And so, Lord, we pray, give our leaders wisdom. We ask you, God, that you will bring this war to a quick close. And we pray now that as we go to your word this evening, we'll study, we'll learn, we'll read together. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. You know, I was just so grateful. I don't know if you remember, but we sent a team of folks to uh, Vienna to help with the construction there of, of the church. That's the church that, that Christopher, our, our second son, was helping work on and identified that there was a, a major heating and air conditioning uh, structural failure that had not been put in right. And so um, Chris brought it to the attention of, of the pastor who happens to be a friend of ours. They call the architect. And when the architect came out there, he said, this, this would have fallen within a week. Well, that Sunday, Rick Warren was supposed to be there to dedicate the church. And so, you know, that's just the church tonight that uh, we helped get, you know, their building built that uh, is taking in folks from Ukraine this evening. Well, A.W. tells you, if you want to follow along with your notes tonight, I want to talk about Be Near to Us, O God. And I took that title from my message from a song by Shane and Shane, and we'll look at that later. But A.W. Tozier said something that had a profound impact on me years ago. Tozier said, what comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And you know, maybe tonight before you go to bed, you want to sit down and just journal, what comes to my mind when I think of God? For me, it's Father, 
for me, it's someone that sent Christ, someone that loves me. I'm grateful that I have, you know, positive images of the Lord. I had a wonderful dad, and because of that, I don't struggle. When I was speaking on university campuses and high school campuses, I often couldn't say God is like your dad because... Oftentimes, the dad was either abusive or absent from the picture. And so for those of us that would say, God is like my father, uh, the way Jesus wants us to think of him, that revolutionary statement where Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father, that's the kind of man I want to be, but that's how I think of the Lord. And so Tozer says, it really says a lot about you when you are able to state what comes to your mind when you come about God. One of the things that happens to young Bible college students, young ministerial students, is when they get into theology, all of a sudden they start trying to think so academically. You're never going to put God in a box. There's a reason that you call a sophomore a sophomore, because a sophomore technically means someone that's learned more than they know what to do with. And I can remember I would learn all these concepts about God in my theological studies, and I'd come home and share them, and nobody wanted to listen to me. (laughs) Nobody wanted to hear what I was paying good money to learn about God. Well, let's look tonight at this first vision. When I looked again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going, I asked. He replied, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. Now, remember, this is a vision. Then the angel who was with me went to meet a second angel who was coming toward him. And the other angel said, hurry and say to that young man, Zechariah, Jerusalem will someday be so full of people and livestock that there won't be room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls. And then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord. And I will be the glory inside the city. Now, Something I want you to get is really, if, I, if, if we had an hour, I would preach all the way through verse 13. But the first five verses, that's the vision. That's the vision. The vision is in the first five verses. Well, after Zechariah has this vision, unlike the others that we've looked at, suddenly Zechariah brings a message And so the application is going to be in verse 6 through 13, and we'll look at that next Wednesday night. Now, the measuring line that you read about there, that has a lot of meaning. Whenever you read about a measuring rod or a measuring line in the Old Testament, there's a lot of meaning there. If you remember in verse 1, in the vision, he said, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Most scholars and most theologians believe that was the pre-incarnate Christ that he was seeing. And what this is, whenever you see somebody with a measuring line, God's getting ready to do something big. God's getting ready to do something glorious in their lives. Because when he's measuring, he's getting ready to take action and do something. Look at verse uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 15. The scripture says there, talking about the people of God when they are when they are worshiping the temple, he says, the Lord will give you big harvest and make you successful in everything you do. You will be completely happy. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying God does things in big and powerful ways in our lives when we serve him and when we trust him. Secondly, the measuring line means this. Jerusalem belongs to the Lord. He's measuring what is his. I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. And so he's doing like maybe 
a farmer would do or a surveyor would do. He's measuring the fields. He's laying out the property lines. Now, don't let all this pass you by because we'll tie it together. This has important significance for us today. And the third thing, by measuring, he's saying that he's going to accomplish his purposes for Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember, we've looked at the fact that how that Israel had been exiled because of their sins, atrocious things that had happened. Abuse, the rich were abusing the poor. Children were being sacrificed to idols. The children of Israel were living like everybody else in those pagan tribes in those days. And God had told them, if you do this, you know, he would remove them from the land. But he promised them through the book of Jeremiah that in 70 years he would bring them back. And that's exactly what's happening here. History bears this out, that they're being brought back to the land. So he says, I've never given up on my plan. I've never given up on my plan for Israel. I've never given up on my plan for Jerusalem. And the people of God would have understood this because when you read the Psalms, they're always celebrating their deliverance from Pharaoh. When you read the writings, you read how that they're celebrating the deliverance when Sennacherib's armies had surrounded Jerusalem and Hezekiah prayed and the people of God prayed and God delivered them again. Zechariah chapter 2, and let me skip ahead to verse 12, and we'll look at this a little closer next week. The land of Judah will be the Lord's special possession in the Holy Land, and he will once again choose Jerusalem to be his own city. Now, circle that or underline that verse because this is important. Although there are principles here that apply to the church, there are some people that try to spiritualize this and say this is all about the church and it no longer applies to Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is being very specific here. The land of Judah will be the Lord's special possession. And notice this, it's the only time that this phrase is used in the Holy Land. If I say Holy Land, most of us think about Israel. Most of us think about Jerusalem. I heard it used on the news the other night from, a, from a NBC. They were talking about the Holy Land. Well, that's what we think of in the Bible, but that's the, this is the only time that that phrase is used in the Old Testament. And God is saying there, I have chosen them as my own. Now, it does also apply to the church in this sense, that the church belongs to Christ, that now there is no Jew, Greek, or Gentile, the Scripture says. We've been grafted in. We're the wild olive branches, and we've been grafted in. My uncle was a professional grafter, and what he did was he grafted citrus trees in Florida for the citrus industry, and he was busy all the time. He made a wonderful living. He would bring his clients to his home, and I've seen there, I've been out there with him, my dad. He had a citrus tree in his backyard that grew seven different kinds of citrus fruits. Imagine that, you know, you just go out and get a, a citrus basket of different fruits off of one tree. But what he did, and he would show his clients, he grafted these various citrus limbs into one tree, and the limb did not lose its identity it still bore, if it was a tangerine, it bore tangerine. If it was a navel orange, it bore navel orange. If it was a grapefruit, it bore grapefruit. But it drew its life from the trunk of the tree. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says that we are grafted in, we're the wild olive vines, we're grafted in to the natural tree, which was the nation of Israel. Also, I believe this applies to us, because how else can you explain the church's existence? Becky and I have wandered, I have preached in all these places, in Rome and in Athens and in Jerusalem. 
I have seen these places where the church was persecuted, the catacombs where people, you know, had to, to gather. How do you explain the church's existence, not only in the early days of the church when the church was trying to be stamped out of existence, but even tyrants and dictators through the years have tried to do away with the church. Despite the fact that tonight China, and it was really difficult for me to watch any of the Olympics being hosted by China, and I don't mean to be political, but we have brothers and sisters that are being martyred in China today because of their faith in God, as well as other people groups like the Uyghurs. So it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's Uyghurs instead of Uyghurs, but anyway... Uber is what you call to take you to the airports. But anyway, we, we have to deal with all this. The Lord does protect his people. Number four, I love the fact that Zechariah, I just bear witness with this. Zechariah looks at this guy measuring. I'm not even sure he knew that it was, a, you know, what theologians say was the pre-incarnate Christ. And he goes, what are you doing? So anytime you've got a question, ask. When we first moved to Michigan, there was a lot of things I didn't understand about the culture here from Georgia. And I went over to my neighbor's house. He was a retired Marine captain. I went over and knocked on his door and I said, Bill, I've got a really dumb question. He goes, and he just, that real gruff Marine voice, he says, no such thing as a dumb question. The only dumb question is the unasked question. So if I could muster that voice up to you tonight, I'd say that's the only foolish question. It's the unasked question. So if you don't understand what God is doing, ask. God will give us an answer. Where are you going? I asked, is what Zechariah said. William Smith, who is a, excuse me, Ralph Smith, who, is a, who is a, works with children, says this, children ask roughly 125 questions per day. Those of us that have raised children, we know that to be true. 125 questions. Take a guess how many questions a day an adult asks. Close. Two. Six questions a day. My question tonight is, where does the other 119 questions go? Where is that curiosity about life? Where is that desire to learn, not only from the Bible, but about life and period? Uh, Becky and I were in um, Florence. Was that where we saw the Da Vinci drawings at? We were in Florence, and there was, there, we, we went down into a place where Da Vinci worked, and there were all these drawings that he had sketched on the walls, and I was just mesmerized. But I had read a book years ago that a couple in the church here had given me for Christmas about Leonardo da Vinci, the man had an insatiable curiosity. He carried a notebook with him everywhere. He was always asking questions. One writer that, uh, that I have met, Mark Batterson, he says that da Vinci called the five senses the ministers of the soul, and Batterson goes on to say perhaps nobody in history stewarded those five senses better than da Vinci did. He was a man ahead of his time because he was curious. So Ask questions. Ask questions of the Word. Ask questions of God. Ask questions of one another. The fifth thing that I want you to see here this evening from these first five verses is that Jerusalem is going to grow beyond the grandest hopes and the biggest dreams that Zechariah could have ever had. Now let me follow up on this. Because at the same time that we ask less questions, something happens to us that doesn't happen to our children. Our children expect big things. 
Our children expect their dreams to come true. Our children, if they're raised in a healthy home, they expect their wishes to come true. And they're willing to ask God for big things. Our grandsons came to us this year before Christmas, and they said, we want a puppy for Christmas. And mom and dad said it was all right. <laughs> and um, there was a little more to the story. Mom and dad did say it was all right, but the other dog has to go to heaven first. And mom and dad want to be the one <laughs> making that decision. But I love the fact that they had confidence. They asked us, we would get them the puppy, you know. And I really wanted to. <laughs> I really wanted Only because I wouldn't have to clean up behind it, you know. But the fact of the matter is, are you desiring less than God wants to do in your life? Are you living below what God wants to do? Are you desiring less than God is willing to give? The other angel said, look at verse 4. The other angel says, hurry and say to that young man. Now notice, we've already talked about the fact of these angels. But he says to, Zachary, he says to the other angel, he says, tell that young man. And I believe in a certain sense from preaching this tonight, not that I've heard a word for any of you this evening, I haven't, but I have heard from the Lord as I prepared this message from his word, that the Lord would say, this is a word for you tonight as well. Hurry, say that young man, Jerusalem will someday be so full of people and livestock, there won't be, any room, there won't be room enough for everyone, and many will live outside the city walls. Now, Unless you understand history, you don't really get this. Jerusalem has been leveled. Jerusalem has, the temple is gone. The buildings have been burned down. Nebuchadnezzar literally leveled that city to the ground. People were, that were there were living in hovels. And here's what he's saying is they're trying to come back and get homes and fields established. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see how their enemies are attacking them and trying to keep them from working and trying to stop what God wants to do there. So you're looking at a place, there's somebody measuring, and then he says, this city is going to be so large that people will live outside the city walls. People didn't want to live outside the city walls because if you lived outside the city walls, there was no protection for you. You remember that proverb in the book of Proverbs that says, a man who cannot control his temper is like a city without walls. In other words, if you can't control your temper, you know, just about anybody can push your button and cause you to self-destruct. And so cities had walls about them to protect them. The reason that the walls of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built that destroyed Jerusalem are so famous is because they could drive seven chariots, seven double-horse chariots, side by side around the city walls. That's the reason that they thought it would never be conquered. And that's another story from another book of the Bible at another time. But walls were important. So here's what I'd like to say to you tonight. Just a few lessons from this. Don't draw the lines too narrowly in your life. Don't draw the lines too narrowly. Just a few years ago, and she may, she, may be, she may have died by now, but just a few years ago I read a news article about a 114-year-old woman. Um, she got a Facebook account. She had to lie about her age <clears throat> because Facebook will only let you get an account up to age 99. 
So for at least one day, she was 99 years old. And her grandson bought her an iPad. And he said, my grandmother is insatiably curious about life. She's always asking questions. She didn't draw the lines too narrow. She got Facebook friends and enjoyed being on Facebook. And I think sometimes as we get older, maybe we haven't been able to accomplish what all we wanted to accomplish. Or maybe when we're younger, we don't have the resources to do what we want to do. Maybe you didn't have the health to do what you wanted to do. Or maybe as some of my friends have said to me in times past, I just didn't have the right connections. Listen, if you're looking at people, if you're looking at finances, if you're looking at connections, the lines are too narrow in your life. If God be for us, who can be against us? God is the one that opens doors and shuts doors in our lives. God gives us opportunities if we will be faithful to him. From that, I also draw out that our Lord has other sheep. Because if you look at that verse... Jerusalem will someday be so full of people and livestock there won't be room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls. As we go on, we're going to find out that every ethnic tribe, people from all over the world are going to be represented in Jerusalem. Now, this prophecy, let me say this, and this is not in your outline, so you may want to jot it down. This prophecy has never been fulfilled yet. It's never been completely fulfilled. I know Jerusalem's been rebuilt I know that it was destroyed again. Then I know it's rebuilt again. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But part of this is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. And that's what I want you to keep your minds on. Because Jesus said, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. Israel, the wild olive branches grafted in. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and they will be one flock with one shepherd. Well, you and I, unless you're Jewish in here and I'm not aware of it, you and I we are those sheep of that other sheepfold that God has brought in. So here's what I want you to see. Christ is the one that made the way. When I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, there are what they call blaze marks. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you're hiking, there are blaze marks. And, and certain colors meant you were going north. Certain colors meant you were going you know, south on the trail. Somebody went ahead and blazed the trail. That's where that saying comes from. Somebody blazed the trail. It's literally what Christ did with us, for us, by his blood. He blazed the trail. Max Lucado tells a story in one of his books, and, and I forget which one, but it's just one of those stories you can't forget. If you remember, Max had served for a while in Brazil, of a missionary that was trying to reach an unreached people group and, and wasn't having a whole lot of success but all of a sudden, there was this disease that affected this tribe of people. And there was a hospital nearby, but they had to cross the river in order to get to the hospital. But they thought the river was full of evil spirits, and so they wouldn't go. So the missionary splashed water on his face to show it was okay. Nothing happened to him. They still wouldn't cross. He went into the water up to his waist and was just splashing the water. They still wouldn't cross and so what he did next was pretty amazing. He dove under the water, and it must not have been a real big river, but he dove under the water, and he swam all the way across the river underwater and then came up and was just pumping his fist in the air. And when they saw him safely swim under that river, they crossed, and they were able to get treated at the hospital. Literally what that missionary was doing was blazing a trail 
for their health, but he also blazed a trail by being able to reach those people for Jesus Christ. Isn't that an incredible story? And that's what Jesus does for us. Which leads me then to the third thing I want you to see from this verse. The enormous immigration that we're seeing in Israel is a prophetic sign. Now, the last two years, immigration has been down in Israel as it has been in many countries. But it's still significant. But the fourth, the, Israel ranks fourth among the nations for people immigrating to Israel. Fourth among the nations. If you've never been to Israel, it's, it's just amazing how tiny this country is. And yet people are trying to get there every single day. And when I see that, now, let me put it this way. When I see that, for me, this is a prophetic sign that God is pulling the end time plan together. But now that doesn't mean that if some reason tomorrow that all the Arab nations were tried to try to do what they've tried to do several times in the past, like 1967, you know, and Israel was destroyed, that doesn't mean that God's plan still wouldn't come to pass. I don't think that's going to happen. But right now, there's an important distinction. Israel needs her allies. Israel needs her allies. That's another reason we know this particular vision hasn't been completely fulfilled, which brings me then to why I think this is going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. The Lord himself will be the protection of Jerusalem. The Lord himself will be the protection of Jerusalem. Now, I've got several verses here I want to read you because <clears throat> I think it'll tie this all together. Somebody tell me the time. Okay, give me just a few more minutes and I'll wrap this up. Then I myself, this is in verse 5, then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. Remember verse 4, there will be no walls. Why is there no need for a wall? Because God will be like a protective fire around Israel. Now go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There's this flaming chip, there's this, this whole symbolism again. Imagine what would have happened if we had been able to eat of the tree of life and then were doomed to live forever in our sins, doomed for the violence forever. Remember, there were no animals killing animals, there were no brothers killing brothers like happened almost immediately with Cain and Abel. So God was protecting there. Then if you'll look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, then Elijah prayed, his servant Gehazi was scared to death because they were surrounded by a great army. Then Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes, let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And you know the rest of that story, how God delivered then this is very familiar because it's also the story of the tabernacle and the temple. When the tabernacle was first constructed, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day and at night glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it and they continued through, and this continued throughout all their journeys. This is what we call the Shekinah glory of God. It's the Shekinah glory that we'll be protecting. And then when the temple was dedicated, this is after the temporary tabernacle was done away with, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven, burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. 
Now, not too long ago, I was having lunch with a good friend of mine who's a rabbi, and um, one of his congregates, who happens to be a very good friend of mine and a, a dear friend, um, is a member of the tribe of Levi. And so I asked him, you know, I asked uh, the rabbi one day, I said, and let's just call him Joshua. I said, well, Joshua, one day, if, if, if the temple is restored, would he be called upon again? He goes, absolutely. And he says, we look forward to that day. Now, as a Christian, we don't think that temple is ever going to be used for sacrifices because Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sins. But you can see, and I pulled out some Jewish commentaries as I was working on this, they're, they're looking for the same thing that we are looking for. They just, the majority of them don't know that Christ is the Messiah. Now, my friends know that, I, that Becky and I believe that, and that I pastor church, and um, they're planning on coming to worship with us one Sunday, and I'm really excited about that. But here's my point. They're looking for a Messiah. We know who the Messiah is. And there are so many Messianic Christians that I've met through the years. So let's wrap this up tonight with this. God is our source, my source, your source of protection, provision, and prosperity. Look again at verse 4, that there'll be so many people and livestock, there won't be room enough for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls. So what God is saying to us here, he's, he's inviting you and me to draw near to him. The book of Hebrews says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's what he's saying. And Zechariah is going to unpack this in his sermon that we're going to look at. So you want to read ahead and get ready. Some of you have been doing that anyway, and I'm so proud of you. But he's going to unpack this. Draw near to me. And I love this song by Shane and Shane. If you haven't heard it, Be Near, O God. But listen to this, this part of the chorus. Be near, O God. Be near, O God of us. And I should have capitalized that G there. Your nearness is to us our good. Can we say that together? Your nearness to us is our good. Say that again. Your nearness to us is our good. A.W. Tozier, whatever a man thinks about God, that's the most important thing about him. God is not angry at you. God is not disappointed in you. God knew you before you were ever, you ever crossed the line and gave your heart to Jesus. He knew your frustrations. He knew your future. He knew your failures. He knows your successes. Be good to us. Draw near to us. Be near us, O oh God. I want him more than ever. Secondly, the glory of God is his presence among us. When you read about the glory of God, don't just think about some ethereal cloud with a fire burning in it. Don't think about just some, you know, I've had people say, oh, if I could just see God do what he did in the, in the Old Testament. Friends, we've seen better than that. Jesus is, he's the final word of God to us. I, I, I love this. This is from a Hildebert of the 11th century. God is over all things, under all things, outside all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above presiding, holy beneath sustaining, holy without embracing, holy within filling. Isn't that powerful? Let that sink into you. God is beneath you, not because somehow or another he's Lord himself, but he's sustaining you tonight. Be near to us, O God. The glory of our God is our protection. The glory of God brings us his grace. Grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve. And the glory of the Lord is our present 
and our future hope. And then I just give you several verses here. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. You know, I'm so King James oriented, I'm looking right at it, and I almost said tower, <laughs> you know. First John 4.4, 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Isaiah 54.17, no weapon formed against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication for me. This is what God, now listen, don't miss this. This is what God is about to do for Israel, bringing them back from their exile. This is what God has done for us in Christ, because the Lord lives within us tonight. Amen? Jesus, we thank you so much. Thank you for those that have joined us online tonight. And Lord, as we get ready for a Q&A session here and just talk about this, we ask your blessings and we pray again tonight, especially for the nation of Ukraine, Lord, that God, you would protect, you would provide, and you would crush the enemy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Good night.